Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Romans 4, 13 through 25. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham and hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why, quote-unquote, it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, quote-unquote, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life, for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly God, uh, we read that the word of your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so as we listen for your voice now, we pray that we would hear your loving grace calling to our broken hearts, leading us home. We pray that you, we would hear something from you. May not be what we hoped for, may not be what we wanted to hear, but maybe it's what we need to hear. And we pray that as we walk in a broken and damaged world, we would hear a voice that gives us hope that you're weaving things back together again and that you will return someday. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Passage includes, uh, or the readings include two passages. Our focus is a little more predominantly on Psalm 22 today. Psalm 22 is probably best known because Jesus prayed the words of the beginning of this psalm when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a psalm that invites us to prayerfully live in, in a difficult tension. A difficult tension. It's a psalm that reminds us that the Bible is always inviting us to live in a difficult tension. That to be an authentic Christian is to walk in a difficult tension. The season of Lent, which we started in on a couple weeks ago, highlights probably what's most troubling about the tension that we're invited into. Facing bad news. Facing up to the bad news. Because the tension of the Bible is that this is a fantastic, glorious world. And you and I have within us purpose and glory in our beautiful hearts. And yet, also, things are spoiled. Things have fallen short. And things around us seem constantly bent or are bending away from glory. And Lent walks us into how things are spoiled and bent. And we say on Ash Wednesday, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In the day after Ash Wednesday, I don't know what it's called. I don't think it's called Ash Thursday. But the Thursday after Ash Wednesday this year, a news article came out that said our, our lifespan this year, the statistics show our lifespan went down one whole year, <laughs> our, expect, our life expectancy. Remember that you are dust. In Ash, in Ash, on Ash Wednesday and in Lent, we often focus on the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And so Lent is really quite foreign to us, foreign to what we want. I mean, haven't we been learning from our school teachers um, all the way to our favorite celebrities and our favorite TikTok figures? Believe the good things about yourself. Keep a positive self-image and flee from the bad news and unfollow the bringers of bad news. We are taught, actually, to avoid the tension. To avoid the tension. And so to our culture today, Christianity can feel like a, a hideous obsession with bad news. You know, Christianity is an outlook that teaches you to pray like Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Romans 4, the past, that passage reminds us that there's this, these people named Abraham and Sarah. And they were painfully asked by God to leave behind their homeland and their families on a promise that God would give them a child. One that, the child that didn't arrive for decades. And that God then used, once that child did arrive, used as a horrifying test for Abraham's faith. 
Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And then is only saved at the last minute by a ram caught in the thicket and God stopping Abraham from plunging the knife down on his own son. A lot of the Bible feels like bad news. Like how the only path for our salvation could come through God basically turning a blind eye on his own son, Jesus, and letting him be murdered on a cross for our sins. Sure, he rose from the dead on the third day, but why did all that bloody suffering and inhumane crucifixion have to be a part of the process to get to the empty tomb? See, the Bible's different than our cultural framework and our culture's outlook because the Bible would lead you to the reflection that is inherent and the tension that is contained in verse 24 of Psalm 22, which says, Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. That's at the end of verse 23. And then in 24 says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You see, there is suffering. There is affliction. But actually, in the end, God isn't absent. And he hears your cry. And he has earned your praise. The writer of this psalm writes after the fact, and so we see both things fully present. The full weight experienced of being abandoned. And at the same time, the knowing that God has heard the cry for help and didn't abandon. I sat in my therapist's office a little over a year ago, and um, he reminded me once again of this thing that, um, that I found very helpful, that it's possible, he would say, Mark, come on, it's possible, it's possible to hold together two seemingly competing or contradictory realities at the same time. Holding together two seemingly contradictory things and, and, and that they're both true at the same time. This can end up being a really powerful thing in our relationships. Um, think about it this way. Think of someone maybe, you know, someone in your life, someone, a, a family member, a coworker, um, a friendship. Um, and on the one hand, this person has hurt you. Um, on the one hand, this person did something that you do not respect. And at the same time, you still desire to remember how you did respect them and what you do respect about them. And you still desire, despite the recent wounding, you desire to end up on good footing. It's very hard to hold those two things together, but inside of that is an incredible power. And that's a truth. My, my, therapist, uh, my, my therapist was not a Christian therapist, and yet 
this truth is out there. It's discoverable. And I believe all truth is God's truth. And yet Christianity gives an incredibly vivid picture of this truth, where we find Jesus. And he begins on the journey towards uh, Holy Week. Jesus begins to tell his closest followers. He begins to tell them this repeatedly. And we see it in the Gospels where it says, And again, Jesus told them that he was going to suffer, be captured, arrested, suffered, and die, and then rise from the dead. And within that is this incredible tension that Jesus, the Son of God, would go the path of suffering, the path of, of horrific death, and the glorious path of resurrection. And Christians, when we are baptized, when you become a Christian, um, it's, it's kind of like um, our baptism is talked about in Scripture in a way that really is confusing, and I don't know that it's possible to fully wrap your mind around this, but, but the, the idea is that that sequence of Jesus going into suffering and then coming up out of the tomb, going into death, being buried, and then rising again, that his death and his resurrection gets in somehow, in the most essential way, imprinted on, on our hearts, on our soul, whatever you want to say. That process, that journey becomes us. It becomes ours. We are fully kind of given the real, all that that reality is of Jesus dying and rising. It becomes our dying and our rising. And so there is a tension that Jesus lives out and that also becomes ours. Um, I've spent uh, more, than, uh, more than once, I've had the challenge of trying to fix a gate in a backyard um, at my last house and in my current one. And, and this can be both frustrating and also rewarding when you fix a gate because gates, they tend to, as you probably know, uh, they tend to sag and they get wet in the winter and, you know, and, and dry out and get warping and then you get rotting and all this stuff with a gate. And gates usually sag towards the place. Um, and so, and so they need kind of pulling back. And there's this thing that you can do. You can stretch a cable. Uh, you can buy a kit and it stretches a cable across the two corners. And then in the middle is something called a turnbuckle. And what it does is it kind of takes the shape. This is a really bad version of it, but it takes the shape and actually kind of squeezes it so that the corners come together. And that's, for me, a picture of the Christian faith because that gate, once uh, kind of reshaped and pulled by the tension, it actually can work perfectly and fit right into that spot like it's supposed to. And with the Christian faith, it's very similar in that um, if you pull one way, you're going to sag and, and, and you're going to run into problems on one end. And if you pull the other way, you're going to run into problems on the other end. And so we hold together this tension, friends. Over and over again, you've heard me say it. We are all more than a mess than we care to admit. And in Christ, we are more loved than we ever imagined. Hold those two together for an extremely powerful journey with God. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we ask that you would bring power to the words that we have heard this morning. Perhaps it's words that I've spoken, perhaps it's words uh, in the psalm or from the book of Romans, or perhaps there's something that has been whispered into our hearts by your Holy Spirit today. 
bring power, not just to us as individuals, but to us as a church, that we may find out how our identity together can be that of supporting each other in taking up our cross and following you. In the power of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.